This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruneau. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Catherine Phipps, Associate Professor in the Department of History at the University of Memphis. Dr. Phipps is the author of Empires on the Waterfront, Japan's Ports and Power, 1858 to 1899, published by Harvard University Asia Center in 2015, as well as guest editor of Volume 30 of Japan Forum, Meiji Japan and Global History, published in 2018. Dr. Phipps, thank you so much for talking with me today. Oh, it's great to be with you. Now, you recently organized a couple of conferences on the Meiji Restoration that you're calling Global Meiji. And in fact, this led to a special issue in the Japan Forum looking at Meiji from this global perspective. So could you tell us about some of the background of this conference, what some of the themes that you were interested in, and then what were some of the major discoveries? So this was a great experience for me. I've been working on the Meiji era for some time, and it actually started with Christopher Gerdes at the Japan Forum asking me if I would be interested in guest editing this special issue. Chris had in mind that it'd be good to do a workshop around it. And so as we were pursuing funding for a workshop in London, I started pursuing funding for a workshop here as well. And since I went to Duke University, uh, I had some ties there and they were willing to help uh, host there. So we ended up with two international workshops, which was fantastic. Fantastic. We brought a lot of people together at each one and had some great conversations around the question of how do we visualize the Meiji era through a global lens. And so then when we do look at the Meiji era through this global lens, what are some of the things that we see differently than if we were to look from, say, a more domestic lens? I mean, of course, you can't ever totally get rid of the domestic angle, especially by just by calling it the Meiji era. That's what we're going to look like. You still have that sort of inscribed in the question. But I think that what it helps do to look at it from a global lens is we get away from looking at it as just as Japan sort of following the West or interacting with the Western powers, right? It it becomes more of a story where Japan can have its own agency and be its own actor and that it has other dimensions to it that influence Asia greatly. For me personally, one of the things that has always been, I guess, sort of a pet peeve of mine, even though it's still very active idea, is the idea that the Japanese are just copying the Western powers and becoming an imperialist country that way. And I think this is a theme that runs through my work more generally. But I like to think about Japan instead as having more give and take than that, that it's not just this unidirectional, you know, Japan's copying or following or catching up to the Western world, partly because I don't envision that there's actually a coherent Western world out there. And I don't believe that there's like a Western imperialism that Japan then copies. If you look at the British Empire alone, there's so many different iterations of that and so many different ways that they even apply things like international law to that. And newer work is showing that international law, in fact, is born out of the idea that these powers have colonies. And so that's sort of a complicating factor there. But but I think one of the things that I really wanted to draw out is that Japan 
is made up of individuals who both shape and are shaped by global processes, right? So Japan has actors that are crossing borders and having different kinds of interactions across this period and bring both their own point of view and positions to the outside world as much as they're taking in what the outside world is giving them. So just kind of to make it more complicated and more multidirectional in terms of flows of influence and and what's actually taking place. That's a great point about complicating this idea of Japan just mimicking the West. And especially when I come back to that and looking at your own work, writing about in this introduction about how the there's been several different commemorations of the Meiji Restoration around. You said you had your conference in London. There has been a couple in Germany and some more in North America, even here at UBC, we had one. When you were looking around at these uh, major commemorations or looking at the state of the field today on the Meiji Restoration, is this kind of global Meiji? Is, is this a common theme or what were some other common themes that you found in looking around? Well, I do think that a lot of what I looked at, there were some that were specifically focused on the Meiji Restoration as opposed to the Meiji period. So I think that our workshops were a little more distinctive by looking across the whole period. And some of the contributors were looking more at later Meiji rather than even early Meiji. And so to take the whole period, I think, is something that maybe we did more than some of the others. And I know some that were in Germany, for example, seemed to look more specifically at the restoration itself and what that looked like up close and looked at it in terms of how would that compare to something like the American Civil War or what connections are there there. So, you know, I think that there's different ways to look at it, but there were a number of conferences and workshops. And in my introduction to the Japan Forum, I kind of do a little overview of some of the kinds of conferences and speaker series that have been out there. And they were really around the world. I mean, through Asia, Japan, Singapore, China, in Russia, in Israel, in Turkey, it seems like a lot of these were academic, not all of them. And so it really was this moment more globally where people were rethinking what this moment meant for Japan. And it comes at a really interesting time in terms of Japan itself trying to figure out what it looks like for, say, the next 50 years from now, right? That it's kind of reconfiguring what it can be as a nation state in a world that's being seriously challenged by global trends. In Japan itself, I understand there was a major emphasis on industrialization and Mm -hmm. particularly with these UNESCO sites and that being timed in order for the sesquicentennial. There definitely seemed to be this emphasis on the Meiji success story, right? perhaps one that can be repackaged and then resold to other developing countries. Exactly. So was there a difference between the way that the restoration was commemorated in Japan versus some of these international conferences you were looking at? Yeah, that's really interesting question. Unfortunately, I don't know. I was not privy to what was taking place at any of the conferences that were held in Japan itself. But in terms of the kinds of things that, say, cities or the national government were putting forward, they were definitely focusing on a few different things. One, you know, the Abe government seemed to really be focusing on wanting to promote the Meiji Restoration as something that happened because of the commitment of its people and the, you know, the fortitude of of the Japanese people and wanting to use that. You know, we've faced challenging times before and we can do that again and and meet them 
with success today as well. I think some of the more localized areas, especially where there were strong connections to the restoration, so, you know, in Satsuma or Choshu, in Yamaguchi and Kagoshima, the commemorations partly had to do with their local hometown heroes. And a lot of it, I think, had to do with tourism in their area, specifically around this sesquicentennial. You mentioned before that challenging this idea of a Japanese mimetic imperialism, we might call it, or, or Japan's copying the West simply to copy the West is something that you've explored in your research more broadly. Could you tell us about how you're doing that through your own research? Yeah, well, I, I think that one of the ways that I first did that was through my first book, where I looked at a lesser known part of Japan's Meiji history And I started off actually wanting to do some work on the connections between Japan and China. And that was one reason why I went to Western Kyushu was thinking that that was going to be a good geographical location to find strong connections. And as I started exploring, the British Empire, of course, kept getting in the way. But the British Empire was also what allowed Moji, the port of Moji, which ends up being the primary locus of my investigation, is that the coal industry was able to grow because of the Western shipping that was in the area. And as I started looking more and more at shipping networks and the coal trade, the question suddenly occurred to me, which I guess seems pretty obvious, should have been a first question for me, was how is it that this port is closed and yet it is actually able to conduct this trade and also have foreign ships come into its harbor. And so I started looking more at this question of open Japan versus closed Japan and realized that there were a series of other ports. They were called Tokubetsu Yushitsunyuko or import export special trading ports is how I ended up translating them. And that these special trading ports, and there are a variety of them, were actually operating under the umbrella of the treaty port system, but were really taking advantage of it without losing anything by doing so. So they were special sites that the Japanese government designated that allowed for especially export trade to be handled in these key locations around specific products that these locations were geared to sell. So coal was a big one. Wheat, wheat flour, sulfur, rice, these were some of the first goods that they were allowed to sell in these locations. And these increased over time so that by the end of the treaty port era, by 1899, there were 22 of them domestically and then others that had been opened in Taiwan and the Pescadores as well. And so this was a whole sort of sub-network of ports that were operating that nobody had paid attention to as part of this system. And I think it really goes a long way toward explaining how Japan was able to not just maneuver within the treaty port system and make it work for them, possibly, you know, I'm sure with the blessing of, of the Western powers, but also how they were able to so quickly, once they did open their doors in 1899 fully to the Western world, that they were able to really have a very high functioning set of commercial ports and they were able to industrialize rapidly. The industrialization is usually attributed directly to 
the success and the indemnity that they got from the Sino-Japanese War of 1894-95. And that's really, to me, you know, a small part of the story when you realize how many more places had the infrastructure and active merchants and others who were already functioning at a higher level by the time Japan became an open country. So often we hear about these treaty ports during the Meiji period, and you know, the ones of Yokohama, Kobe come to mind, and then even smaller treaty ports like Hakodate, Niigata that weren't quite as used. But you said these are ports even beyond that, and there's 22 of them. And so you talked about Moji. What would be some examples of these other ports? Yeah. So, and Moji, I should say, ended up, it surpassed Nagasaki in the amount of trade that it was conducting. And so it bested right away, you know, which wasn't too hard, Niigata and, and Hakodate in terms of the amount of trade it was handling. Other ones were Tsushima ports that never really closed. So part of what I do in that book is look at the transition from this idea of four gates to five treaty ports, that it wasn't just a total, you know, those four gates shut down and then there were five treaty ports that freshly opened, that it's that that also is a more complex story. And later the Ryukyu's Naha was added partly to curb smuggling. There were some other areas in Kyushu, especially in Western Kyushu, like Kuchinotsu, that opened to sell coal. Shimonoseki had also opened. Originally, they were conducting trade with Korea after the 1876 Treaty of Gangwa. So a lot of these sort of openings also had windows onto what was happening with Japan's Asia trade, as opposed to what was happening just with the Western trade, or also had to do with the Western trade in Asia, meaning that, for example, the Japanese coal industry was supplying the British ships that were in Asia, not overseas, right? So it keeps the focus sort of on the, I use a, a phrase that had been used previously, transmarine East Asia, in order to kind of capture this idea that this is still all taking place in Asian waters, that the treaty port system with China embedded a lot of Japan's activities, and I think has significant bearing on the rise of Japan's empire in that locale. So it was more organic, it more organically rose out of that kind of matrix rather than it's something that they copied. And how different was life in these special ports as opposed to the treaty ports? Were there foreign settlements or extraterritoriality? No. So the foreigners were not allowed in them. They were allowed in the harbors, right? So this opens up a new zone of contact that has also not really been explored. That, for example, in Moji's harbor, there were constantly foreign ships in the harbor that would have to stay there for, on average, about three days, I think, to be able to load coal. It was all loaded by manual labor. And so so it was a very time-consuming process. And so while they were in the harbor, smaller ships from shore would go out with, for example, prostitutes and service those ships. There were also merchants who went out and tried to sell some of their wares. And so they had these interactions with crews and with captains that hadn't really been looked at before, that there's this other dimension to these. And then for Moji specifically during the Sino-Japanese War of 1894-95, because the headquarters, the military headquarters was in Hiroshima, it was a clear throughway through the Strait of Shimonoseki there that a lot of soldiers were leaving Moji to go to the front and a lot were returning to Moji when they came back. And then they also, through the 
Moji Shimpo, which was the main source that I used, the newspaper in Moji, they sent correspondence onto the different ships and interviewed people. And so again, just different points of contact and different flows of communication than we're used to thinking about. And this is all outside the name treaty ports. always been fascinated by how quickly you could say Japan turns outwards after the Meiji Restoration. You know, and that's, of course, has this false construction of looking at the Tokugawa period as this closed system. Right. And as you said, we do want to revisit that. But, you know, there's also work starting with people like Amino Yoshihiko, Peter Shapinsky, Michelle Damien, looking at these international connections in the pre-modern period prior to 1600. Right. And so, as you were saying, you know, there was a lot of uh, trans-Pacific interactions with uh, all across the East Asia region. Should we see the Tokugawa period maybe as just a temporary blip in that or maybe a temporary valley of connections? Because there does seem to be some disconnect between Japan and the rest of East Asia during that period. So this is something that I'm still sort of, of grappling with is this idea that so we've reconfigured what Sakoku was and was not, right? And so there is truth to the idea that Japan was isolationist, but there was a lot of interaction that was taking place, especially from the end of the 1700s through to the Meiji Restoration or to Perry's famed landing. And so we've kind of been opening that up, especially with uh, through a lot of the early modern scholars who have been working on this and have shown all the different ways that there were all kinds of even accidental landings, right, that took place and the kinds of interactions and the awareness that that some people had. It makes sense that Satsuma and Choshu right there on the key waterways watching ships pass their shores would have been most eager to partake and also to militarize in defense. But there's also, we haven't done a corresponding re-examination of what then it meant for Japan to open. And so a couple of the things that I've been working on now still deal with that question. So obviously being aware of the special trading ports and what happened there is one part of what I've discovered. But the book chapter that I have coming out, Sovereignty at the Water's Edge, Japan's Opening as Coastal Encounter, has to do with looking at this time period, the long 19th century, and trying to understand exactly what Japan's opening means. Because part of what I'm doing there is looking at actually the fact that we keep saying Japan opened starting in 1854, more thoroughly in 1858. And then, you know, it's almost by the time we get to the Meiji Restoration, we think Japan is, a, is an open country. When in fact, Japan is still very closed, right? All of the foreign encounters that are taking place are still happening along the coastline. Foreigners are rarely allowed into the interior. And I think because there has been so many good diaries and travelogues that, that came out of that time, we see foreigners walking around Japan and telling us about Japan in the English language. And so we get this sense that Japan is open. And we know that there are a lot of ideas coming in and a lot of goods being exchanged 
But the reality for most people is that Japan was closed, right? People were not encountering foreigners in the interior. Maybe along the coastline they were, in places like Moji, in places like the treaty ports. But for the most part, there's continuity there. The Sakoku policy has changed, but Japan doesn't open until 1899. So we've got another half century after Perry's arrival to really think about what Japan was able to do to prepare for that opening. And that there are still tensions within Japan among those who want it to open and those who enjoy not having it open (laughs) or think it shouldn't be open. So it sounds like you're saying then you know, despite this kind of reconsidering of Tokugawa as closed, maybe it was more closed if Meiji itself wasn't quite as open as we were thinking before. Yeah, well, I, th- I think it works in both directions. So that Tokugawa, at least by the end of Tokugawa, so again, from, you know, when the Russians were really making themselves known in the north around Hokkaido in the late 1700s, from that point forward, there's both more engagement with the world maybe than we've recognized, willing or not, right? That there there are just more ships in the Pacific and more ships that are passing those coastlines and are at risk of shipwrecks or are interested in making contact with other Japanese vessels that are fishing in those waters or that kind of thing. That there's just there's more likelihood that something's going to happen. And then we know there's more interest as people are more aware of the possibilities of the Pacific, especially in Washington, D.C. or London or places like that, that there's this curiosity about what's happening in Japan that picks up pace even more once China is defeated in the in the Opium War. And so Japan may not have opened on its own at that time, but there was already more encounter, already more engagement over that half century before Perry showed up. And so Perry actually isn't that interesting. We make a big deal out of him because he was the one that got that first treaty, but he was the last in a line of others who had who had tried to do the same thing. And so part of his success may have been timing, that the Japanese were already well aware of all of these other forces at work and all of these other countries that were interested in Japan. And, and Perry maybe partly lucked out, right, in, in terms of being the one that got it to open. But he also didn't get the success that he wanted when he showed up, right? I mean, he he got part of what he wanted, but he didn't get the commercial treaty and he was willing to let that go, knowing that they would keep working on it. And they did. And then it works, uh, back to your question, it works in the other direction as well. That So if there were more encounters with the Tokugawa world at the end of that era than we had previously understood, there are also in some ways fewer ways that Japan was open than we've maybe previously thought of or considered until 1899 when it actually fully opens. And speaking of the possibilities of the Pacific, your work very usefully adds that external view looking at the seas. And to make a bad pun, your work on the oceans adds to a wave of looking at the oceans in Japanese history, all the way back to Amino Yoshihiko, Peter Shapinsky, Noel Wilson, Yakubina Arge. Now, so when we look at Japan from the ocean, how does it change our understanding of Japan's position in the world? So uh, aside from the fact that Japan is an archipelago, right? I mean, its very being is oceanic in nature. And the only way in the Meiji era to communicate with Japan was by sea. 
So to get to Japan or to leave Japan, you had to encounter the ocean. And so that is very tied up in how I would guess that people understood Japan at the time. So in terms of the Pacific becoming this sort of new place of exploration, but also a place that was fraught with different dangers in the mid-19th century is really important to Japan's story because it does start with those whalers, right? That those whalers are the ones that were around Japan. That's who Perry wanted to protect. He wanted fair treatment for sailors or, you know, whalers, others who were in those waters. If they happened to land on Japanese shores, they wanted them to be treated well and then eventually returned home. They also wanted coal. They wanted to be able to fuel their steamships. And so Japan was originally, I think, seen primarily as a landing spot, a place of safe haven and a place to resupply when going from, say, the United States to China across the Pacific. And so its location is really important to why there is interest in it. And what I argue in this book chapter that's coming out is that it's precisely because of Japan's position in the Pacific that it doesn't become a victim of formal colonization, but also that at the same time that it is under the unequal treaties, at the same time that its full sovereignty is compromised by these unequal treaties and it's sort of under the threat of potential military action should they do things that the Western powers don't like, at the same time that they're in that situation, they're able to both demarcate their borders and actually expand them. So there's this really interesting puzzle that that is part of this moment, which is how is it that while Japan is under the unequal treaties, they are also simultaneously able to expand and become a formal empire in their own right, because these happen across the same period of time. And so by the time we get to 1899, we find out that not only is Japan out from under those unequal treaties, but they are actually an empire. And so that partly, I think, has to do with their position in the Pacific and with what the Western powers' interests in Japan were from the beginning. And so one of the ways that they were able to, for example, expand into first, you know, Hokkaido and take the Ryukyus and and go further north into, you know, Sakhalin and and the Kuril Islands and why they were able to go further south and get into the Bonines and had to work on demarcating the inland sea as as domestic waters. And, you know, there, there are all these ways that they had to shape their maritime boundaries, but they did so in expansive ways. And they really didn't get much pushback for doing that. As long as these seas were seen by the competing powers, especially Russia, the United States, and the British, as long as they all maintained free access to these waters, then they weren't particularly concerned about who owned them. It was better for them in some ways for the Japanese to take possession than it was for one of their competitors to take possession and possibly block their passage. And so I think that this situation gave Japan a lot of leeway to take the time that it took to modernize, to industrialize, and to get into a position, not just legally, but financially, commercially, diplomatically, get into a position where once they opened in 1899, 
then they were at full speed as a modern nation state. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.